But Adakatir is not the way it was. The whole landscape is grimmer and greyer, as if someone has dusted it with iron filings. There are buzzards and vultures in the sky, and even crows. The trees are dead. The sheep, most definitely, are dead. They have, in fact, been spread liberally around the place. Half of one gazes reproachfully from the roadside, mouth open in a despairing final bar. The road is busted up, and by this time I have begun to realize that Professor Derrick, like many other brilliant men before him, is a fucking idiot of the first water. The beauty of the go-away bomb was always supposed to be that it was clean, but this has the feeling of fallout. It has the feeling of aftermath, and it definitely feels like the kind of thing Professor Derrick was adamant could not happen. We ride through the grimy day. Occasionally, we see people or things which might be people, but they hide, and we don't stop. Every so often, we hear gunfire and explosions, flashes of curiously bright colours out of place appear and disappear. Dayglow green and gymnasium yellow flicker from around corners half a mile away, and then something goes wump, or crust, and then it's quiet. There's something familiar about those colours. We drive on. No one tries to kill us. We are in the eye of the storm somehow. More glints among the trees, very unnatural pink. Far away, the sound of engines. The road is gradually ceasing to be worthy of the name. A week ago, it was a halfway decent piece of infrastructure. Now it looks as if hailstones the size of footballs have been falling on it, and there are deep cracks and miniature ravines running through it. By the time we reach the mountains, it has given up, and we're following a riverbed. The RVs and the jeep make more noise than we want them to. And the tank won't quite straddle the stream, and either the left or the right caterpillar is constantly in the water, churning away and making a rut. We make Vasil drive at the back of the little convoy. The stream bed leads us around the back of the mesa. That's probably not what it is or what it's called, but it's close enough that I've started thinking of it in that way. And maybe that's a cowboy movie reference. Maybe we're the gang running from the law. And it doesn't go conveniently up the mountain; it runs from a deep pool at the foot of a waterfall. There's a goat track which does go up the mountain; at least Vasil claims it's a goat track. There are nearly three times as many species of sheep as goats in this area, so the odds are against him. The point is that it's a path of sorts, and there is a musty cave behind the waterfall, just big enough to hide the RVs. The tank we leave in the open. It has a nifty anti-theft device now attached to a largish bomb. Vasil is not someone who gets caught the same way twice. We climb, slowly, fearfully. We shoot at shadows, and once someone from down in the valley fires on us, and we all scurry for cover. And I think of Butch and Sundance, but nothing else happens. We hide for about half an hour anyway. Halfway up, we come over a crest, all secret and seriously covert, and there are sheep, not dead, but alive and not alone. There are shepherds too, armed and dangerous, 
Kateris from one army or another, doing exactly what we are doing, running like hell from the most mad part of the world and looking for a place which is less mad. And here they are, and here we are, and there's lots of fear and guns and not much in the way of an exit strategy. The tallest of them is also the leader, and he has a big, big handgun pointed at us, a magnum or some other macho thing, and his friends all have AKs, probably Chinese AK-03s, basically the 74 model which everyone thinks of as an AK-47, plus a bottle opener and some extra seals to make them work better in the monsoon season. And this, right here, is a total goat-fuck in the making, a big old mess of about-to-be-dead people. Gonzo and Jim Hepzibah are ready to go. They're doing casualty estimates in their heads, and Eagle Culpepper has recovered her functionality, if not her sanity, and is lined up on the leader, and every one of them is ready to shoot right back at us. We're staring into the eyes of universal casualties. It is entirely possible that we will be able to tell who wins the fight which is about to happen only by timing who dies last. Hugwog, hugwog, says the boss man angrily, waving his gun around like it's a scepter, although of course he actually asks us something perfectly sensible. He just asks it in his own language, which none of us can speak. His voice is liquid and lambent and beautiful. This does not alter the fact that he's very pissed off and upset. Hug! Hug wug! Hug wug wugga hug hug! Hug wugga! This last comes out a bit shrill as Leah slowly puts her shotgun on the ground in front of her. This is such a sensible thing to do that no one shoots anyone, mostly out of shock. And then we all continue not to shoot one another, because it seems there may possibly be a way out of this. She walks slowly, prettily across the gap between us and them, shunting a more than usually suicidal sheep out of the way with her knee which gets a big laugh. The Kateris do not stop pointing their guns at us, but nor does any one of them specifically cover her either. Leah walks until she's right in front of the leader, and his desert eagle is pointed at us over her shoulder. She leaves her hands by her sides, palms out, so as not to give anyone any mistaken impressions about subtle and terrifying gong fu. She kisses him lightly on his right cheek, then on his left. As gestures go, it's unambiguous. Let's all be friends. Then she turns her back and walks off to one side and sits down on a rock and looks at us all like we're being a bunch of total assholes, which we are. This is also unambiguous, but it takes longer to work out because it runs counter to what you might charitably call the prevailing logic of the situation, Leader boy gets it slightly before Gonzo does, or maybe he just isn't a great card player, and he smiles cartoonishly and very slowly and clearly holsters his gun and bows in Leah's direction, waits for her nod, and goes to sit with her. At this point, there's a kind of general acknowledgement that no one wants to get annihilated here today, and a lot of weapons are lowered and put away, and people embrace cautiously and laugh a bit and one of their soldiers even has a little cry. We say hooray to them, and they say 
hug-wug-wug-hug to us, and we try to copy them and get it wrong, and everyone finds this enormously amusing, until one of the sheep wanders over to the left of where we're all leaping around and laughing, and explodes with considerable emphasis, and we realize that we're all doing our hug-wug-hugging on the edge of a minefield. At that point, the whole business of whether we are allies or sort of neutral goes by the wayside, and we fall into line and carefully tread in one another's footsteps, while Gonzo, on his knees, pokes down into the soil with Sam's knife and leads us through. By the time we reach Shangri-La, us and the Kateris both, we are thirsty and hungry, which is good, because before we were just surviving. We didn't know about hungry anymore. The castle is a ruin, cracked walls and bullet holes. The long balcony is shattered and tumbled down, and the rolling meadows are a scrub. Fires are burning somewhere down in the valley. At the far end of the courtyard, there's a row of tire tracks, not ours. Someone has been here. Maybe is here. But they came here to hide, and they are not Ruth Kemner. In fact, I have an inkling who it must be. A Honda Civic with day-glow green paint and a whale tail is parked just poking out from behind an outhouse. Day-glow, like the flashes we have been seeing since we escaped from Corvid's field. There's a pink Mitsubishi Evo against one wall, and off to one side, like a boarding school matron with her girls around her, the nose of a maroon Rolls Royce. I think... I think we were invited to come here, even escorted. And so I walk to the main entrance and reach for the big solid doors, which open in advance of me to reveal a glittering wall of knife blades and slender pirate monks, and behind them a row of ceramic glocks, and in the very centre of the scene a small bearded figure with a glint of fire in his eyes and a cutlass in either hand. He looks at us, and the Kateri shepherds behind us, and after a moment he smiles, thank God, and drops his hands, and the pirate monks do the same. And he steps back and away, and behind him we can see his few flea-bitten, terrified refugees, and their families, and their animals. And as he smiles, some trick of the light reveals him to me, shows me how his face would look unshaven, I recognize my old friend, Freeman Ibn Solomon, peripatetic ambassador to student debating clubs and can-can artist extraordinaire. He smiles. Welcome, says Zahir Bey. Chapter 7 Family History The Sex Life of Rao Tsur Foals, Monsters and Dreams Zahir Bey's nth forefather was a Turkish Mameluk named Mustafa, a slave soldier who served in Egypt until his particular genius in planning, rather than personally inflicting massive casualties, caused him to be raised above his schoolmates and made a general. Of this gentleman, who had lost an ear in his early career and wore a golden prosthesis in its place, no contemporary images survive such being a violation of strict Islamic law as it was understood by Mustafa, but he is described by a contemporary diarist, freely translated, as a chippy, murderous short-arse. 
His tenure as a general was quietly successful until 1798, when an army of Frenchmen, led by a similarly chippy and short-assed Corsican, marched into Egypt in the hope of carving out a bit of the region and breaking the British stranglehold on India. Mustafa of the Golden Ear duly mustered his army and went out to meet the dastardly frog, who, despite having suffered an egregious defeat at the hands of Horatio Nelson, still contrived to rout the Mameluke forces and capture the bay himself. Expecting only death and ridicule, Mustafa was pleasantly surprised to find himself an honoured guest, and even more delighted to discover that the reason for this. Was his hitherto injurious lack of vertical prominence? The Corsican, in turn, was much pleased to have created not a lifetime foe, but a genuine admirer. Amid discussions about how exactly the victory had been achieved and what was to happen now, Napoleon and the Bey got blasted on a mixture of insanely strong coffee, French cognac, and suspiciously fragrant pipe tobacco. And when the night was over, about a week later. Napoleon was sneaked through the British pickets to the coast by Mustafa Bey's scouts, and returned to France to tell everyone about how he kicked some Anglo-Arab backside before heroically running home again. Mustafa Bey went back to his castle in the company of a formidable adventuress named Camille de la Sainte-Vierge, who shortly thereafter bore a son, the first of his get, and that son studied not only at the Mameluke school. But also with the British, on the basis that while it's always nice to study with the person who beat you, it's more practical to learn the trade from someone who handed him his hat with his teeth in it. From these roots grew a seafaring family of bays, international and sophisticated, fiercely independent, and often at odds with their notional masters. These quibblings over chain of command might have made them natural Americans. Save that Solomon Bay, nineteen o one to nineteen forty seven, eschewed all manner of religion after some time at the Sorbonne, and felt that the United States was by far the most devout nation on earth. At the same time, the Maharaja of Adikatir, Ranjit Roy, known as Doubtful Randy, felt an overpowering need for military men of good family, and invited Solomon, Zahir Bey's father, to create a river navy. And a Katiri defence force for his Raj, a decision which the Maharaja uncharacteristically stuck to, even when all else fell apart around him. Solomon perforce relocated his young pregnant wife to an immensely beautiful hill fort, just in time for the British Empire to fall into horrible and bloody strife, and remove itself from the subcontinent. Zaha Bey was born on a cloudy Sunday in June 1947, and orphaned on Wednesday the following week, when representatives of a local crime syndicate decided to throw off the yoke of British oppression by killing Solomon and his recovering bride, and coincidentally moving a huge shipment of opium from Afghanistan in the ensuing confusion. Zaha Bey was smuggled to London by an aide to Mountbatten. Most likely with that great man's connivance, since very little escaped him at any time. Thus came the bay, swaddled in a goat blanket and bedded on a considerable fortune, to London, and in due time to Oxford University, where he raised some serious hell, drank and rode for his college, 
and was caught in flagrante with the daughter of the Dean of Balliol, all before taking an upper second-class degree, which achievement is still regarded as something of a miracle by those who witnessed his blazing passage through Oxford's watering holes and comely undergraduates.